Thank you for listening to the Keystone Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can visit us at mykeystonechurch.com. Well, guys, I'm talking today about vulnerability, which is a really fun one. Um, We're going through these 12 keys to encountering God's presence. And I think one of the most important and one of the most difficult is vulnerability. Vulnerability, it requires us to put ourselves in a position of feeling exposed. How many of you guys have ever felt that feeling? Like you're just, you're all out there for everybody to see. And that's not a fun place to be. It's not a place that most of us would voluntarily put ourselves. But as we look at this, um, there's a lady that I found, I found her blog. I was just kind of researching this topic and uh, she's a Christian lady and I just loved this quote. So I thought it was incredibly powerful. She said, vulnerability uncovers the heart and allows true courage to come forth. It says self-protection is not my first priority and it allows us to not only be honest with ourselves, but relatable to others. And I loved that, the way she, the, she phrased it. Self-protection is not my first priority. And I think ultimately that's what vulnerability comes down to. Vulnerability comes down to the barriers, the defenses, the things that we use to keep ourselves safe. It's not saying we don't have any barriers or boundaries, but it is saying it's not our highest priority. And I think that, that shift can make a massive impact in our ability to connect with God. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want to read a little bit in Luke, Luke chapter 11. Jesus is, is doing what he does best. He's tweaking people's noses and he's doing it in a loving way, but in a way that draws to the forefront what their specific need is. And so he's meeting with these, uh, Pharisees. It says, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. This is verse 37. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Um, Have you ever had one of those friends who they do something just for the very fact they know it's going to get a reaction out of you? Or a reaction out of somebody around them? That would be my wife. (laughs) Anybody who knows her well knows. Every once in a while, you'll get this comment or this this thing that she'll do something just because she knows it'll kind of have an impact on the people around here. And I love that because that's, that is like Jesus. Jesus is sitting there and he didn't wash very specifically for the fact that he knew it would cause a reaction in these Pharisees. Um, And it says, so they asked him, they marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Again, it doesn't say they said anything to him. It just says they marveled. And Jesus is like, I know what you're thinking. So it says, then the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, you make the outside of the cup clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. I want to pause here because I think there's something really powerful happening here. They clean the outside of the cup because that's what most people see. What he's saying is you give a great appearance but internally in your heart, there's darkness. And Jesus is saying, God made your outside. He made your appearance. And, and he's actually saying, there's nothing wrong with you having a clean exterior, with you having a good looking appearance. But he's saying, God made your inner workings as well. 
which means that your, your, your outside is what gets presented to everybody. But Jesus is actually saying, it's okay for you to present the inside of yourself as well. In fact, it's important for you to present the inside of yourself as well. This next verse that he says, is, it sounds a little confusing, so I'm going to read it in a different translation. The way it re reads here, he says, but rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. In another translation, what he says is, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus is saying, if you take what's inside of you, and you give that to God, and you actually let that be displayed, you become vulnerable, Jesus is saying that is what's going to end up making your whole self clean. And I think what, what he's trying to communicate here is that struggle of we don't want the inside to be seen because we feel like it's darkness. Um, how many of you guys have heard of the, the idea of like first fruits? The tithe of the first fruits, right? So, so when you're tithing your first fruits, you're taking, you take the harvest that's coming, and the very beginning of it, you tithe that to God. And I think often we get first fruits and best fruits confused. Because it does say you're to give the best of your first fruits, but what if your first fruits aren't all that great? It doesn't say wait until you have the whole harvest and then take the best of the whole harvest and then give that to God. It says take the best of your first fruits. What if your first fruits are really dumpy and that's all you've got? I think that's where we struggle in vulnerability to God because we don't want to give it to him if it's not perfect, if it doesn't present the right outward appearance. And I think we struggle in being vulnerable with each other as well because we want that outward appearance. But in a way, tithing to God what's within us requires us to give of whatever is there. Sometimes we're just giving God the best of our worst. And that's true in community as well. When we, when we tithe our vulnerability into community and we're willing to say, this is just what I have right now. This is just what I am right now. That's, that's an offering to God. That's displaying what he created inside of us and what he can only change if we display it. A good picture to use is like, how many, have you ever, um, you ever get a, a, a straw that you had a smoothie in? Like if you make a smoothie at home and the inside of that straw just gets covered in all the smoothie junk. If you just clean the outside of the straw and it's not a clear straw, nobody would know. It looks great, but the interior is still full of muck. But if you want the interior of it to be clean, you have to wash it out, which means that you put clean water in and what's coming out is dirty, right? And I think a lot of times we, we feel uncomfortable because we get life pouring into us from God, but we're not willing to let the dirty out. So we hit this point where there's really nothing else that can come in. Does that make sense? It's like we've gotten, we've, we've received from him but we haven't let the junk out. And so you hit this point where you're stuck. You really can't get any more clean until you're willing to open the bottom end of the straw and let the junk flow out. And you know what? It's vulnerable because to other people, the appearance is gonna be, you're going to all these prayer meetings, you're connecting with people, you're, you're hearing from God, but what's coming out of you is junk. 
you're getting life in, but I see junk coming out. And that's one of the reasons that in the church, we need to have grace for people to be in that place where God is cleansing them and he's pouring things out. We have to be a safe place to share the junk that's inside because there's no other way that we're gonna end up getting clean. We have to give his alms, that's what's with, what is within, so that God can make us all the way clean. And so vulnerability, I think, is, is it's an offering to God, but it's also an offering to each other. And when we're able and willing to put ourselves in that place of being vulnerable and letting him wash us in the presence of others, we're able to encounter him in a deeper way. Because even though it's uncomfortable, even though it can be awkward, even though it can make you feel exposed, the junk is slowly getting washed out and we're able to have a pure mind and heart and spirit with which to engage and encounter God and with which to encounter each other. Now here's something interesting. Sometimes we give God, we give him our first fruits, right? And sometimes all we have is the worst, the best of our worst. But God always saves the best for last. God always saves the best for last. So we give him the best, the best of our worst, and it might all be, not be all that great. But what he's going to give us, I mean, look at, look at the wedding feast. At the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus, okay, Jesus comes, and Jesus is the second Adam. Who's better, the first or the second Adam? The second Adam is better than the first, right? The second Adam, Jesus, is the perfect representation of what we were designed to be. And so he perfects it. He comes, and he goes to this wedding feast, and the first miracle that he does is to turn water into wine. And, and again, he could have made any kind of wine, but he chose to make the best wine maybe that's ever been tasted on the planet. And so they're so impressed with the fact that most people bring out the bad wine at the end. And Jesus is setting a precedent. He's saying God doesn't bring out the bad wine at the end. He brings the best wine at the end. We've got Matthew 20. Jesus tells the story of laborers in the field, and these laborers are working to earn their wages. They each get paid a denarii for working in the field. And the, the, the man who's working, who owns the field goes out and he sees people that don't have anything to do. And he says, you go work in the field too. They only work for one hour. The other guys have been working all day, and yet they get first in line to get paid, and they get paid the same amount as the other guys. Here's the message that God is saying. God is sending the message that he is not running out. He's not getting low on blessing. He's not getting low. He's not running out of mercy. He's not running out of, of resources and provision. And you can easily imagine Israel in this position where they, they've been oppressed. They didn't know when the Messiah was coming. They're longing for him and almost feeling like we had all these miracles way back when, and now we've got nothing going on. Maybe God's just run out of fuel. Maybe we just have gotten what we're going to get. And the best thing that we can hope for is that Messiah will come and just end everything and just take over it all. And yet God says, I have better, I have better. The Holy Spirit was given to specific individuals. Now it's for everybody. Jesus comes and he displays the goodness of the Father. And God shows us that he saves the best for last. And so I think the encouragement in that is we're not supposed to be the ones that give it all perfectly. We're not supposed to be the ones that give out of our best, that give out of, out of all the ideal of what's possible. We're just supposed to give what we have and let him provide his best and do that through us. 2 Corinthians 11.30 says, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. 
which means we have to be aware of our weakness. We can't just hide it or ignore it. And it also means we boast in it because it's already been submitted to God and we know he's going to give his best in response to that. So two quick stories about this, guys. The first is Hannah. Hannah was desperate to have a child. She was made to be a mom. She knew she had this intense passion to pour her love out on a child. And she cried bitterly before God in the temple, so much that Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk. And he comes to her and goes, you know, stop drinking. Get over your, your drunkenness. And she goes, I wasn't drinking. And catch this. This is a verse I've never seen before, or at least never noticed. First Samuel 1.16, she says, to, I, t- she responds to Eli, the guy that's accusing her of being drunk, and she says, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Sometimes we, we glorify these stories of people that prayed and got answers from God as people who just had such massive faith. And I can only hope to one day attain such faith that they had and pray. And maybe if I can just align my faith perfectly and get it just right, then God will hear my prayers. And it says she wasn't praying out of faith. She was praying out of anxiety and vexation. Well, guess what? I bet most of us can muster up some of that, right? (laughs) God doesn't, he's not asking for you to get your heart all perfect and then come before him and then he'll answer. He's saying, bring what you have, bring it earnestly, bring it all, and then you're going to get the answer that you're looking for. One of the things that I love about this story is is in, in the whole Bible, the most common name for God is the Lord of hosts. The most common way that he's referred to is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, the mighty God. I mean, we see him in the Bible talked about as God, the healer. We see him talked about as, as, um, you know, the father. We see him talked about in all these different lights, but the most common one is the Lord of hosts. And the first mention of the Lord of hosts in all the Bible is Hannah. In her prayer, she says, O Lord of hosts, will you give me a son? you give me a child and that 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 the way the way that's translated in in the hebrew is yahweh i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher this i'm sure but zevoat zevoat <laughs> but it's the lord of hosts catch this she's the first one that saw god as the as the warrior and i was trying to think about that why if she's asking for a child And everybody else had approached God in all these different ways. She wasn't asking for God the healer to come and heal her. She was asking for God the warrior to come and fight on her behalf. Catch this. She asked for God the warrior to come and fight on her behalf. She gives birth to Samuel, who has so much favor that it says God didn't let a single one of his words fall to the ground. And you want to know who the next person that calls God the Lord of hosts is in the Bible? It's David, the man that Samuel anoints to be king. And David is in the line of Jesus. David is the king, then it says Jesus is the son of David. So we've got this massive favor and breakthrough and promise in relation to Hannah pursuing the Lord, the mighty warrior, on her behalf. But in order to call on the mighty warrior of God to move on our behalf, we have to admit that we're in a losing battle which requires us to be 
vulnerable enough to say, I can't figure this out. I can't make this happen on my own. We don't just need a healer. We do. We don't just need a father. We do. But we need God, the God of the armies, the God of the mighty, to actually go and do battle on our behalf. And you know what? Being vulnerable requires us to trust his shield around us to protect us. Because if I'm not going to self-protect, it doesn't mean that I don't need protection. But I'm trusting in his protection over me. And when I see God not just as Father, but as God the mighty warrior, that level of vulnerability becomes a lot safer to express. Because I know not only is he going to wrap his arms around me when I need it, but he is going to go to war for me and make sure that I am protected and safe. I just thought that was a really incredible piece of the story. So Hannah comes and her vulnerability is anxiety and vexation, it says. David is another story, right? David, again, the other guy, and I, there's something on this Lord the Mighty Warrior thing, so I want you guys to pray into that a little bit. But David, it says, when the ark was being brought back into Israel, he danced before the Lord with all his might. And that's a whole other ve venue of vulnerability. One is the vulnerability of despair and of need. The other is the vulnerability of, of joy, of revolution, of worship, of adoration. It's saying, I don't care who's around me. His own wife despised him because he was making a fool of himself. It says he danced with all his might. And he's human, which means he is sweating and getting out of breath and going wild in the streets. He's dancing with all his might and it is not dignified. And yet it's in front of everybody. Which kind of brings me to the last thing here. True vulnerability before God doesn't limit itself to places of privacy. True vulnerability before God does not limit itself just to places of privacy. Because true vulnerability says, I don't just trust you to keep me safe when nobody else can see me. True vulnerability says, you're my shield, you're my mighty warrior, you're my defender, I am who I am wherever I am. And that means that in my despair, I don't care if the high priest himself comes and calls me a drunk. That means that if I'm the king and I'm re rejoicing at what God has done, I don't care if my own wife despises me because my vulnerability and my trust in God, I'm not going to dilute my longing for him and what he's doing in me for the sake of appearance. Nothing wounds and destroys vulnerability like the fear of man. Nothing wounds and destroys vulnerability like the fear of man. We've got to make a choice. Whose eyes do we care about? And what that means, guys, is that we, we as a community, we as Keystone, need to fight to keep God at the forefront as our mighty warrior and to keep a community and a culture that is safe for people to go through their junk. That, that all we do is we pour in the life of God into each other and we don't take authority over the junk that sometimes comes out because all that means is the straw is being cleaned. We don't hold each other to a standard of perfection, of never making a mistake, of always looking the right way, of having all the right answers, of dealing with everything perfectly. There's, there's almost nowhere harder to do this than as a parent. As a parent, I do my best to love my kids, and there's days, sometimes there's weeks that go by, and I realize the last several weeks, I have been horrible at having patience with my kids and dealing with them well. I have to teach my kids 
to understand that even though the life of God is pouring into me, sometimes there's going to be some junk that's clearing out. And I do that to them by being vulnerable with my kids, by saying, I'm sorry, I messed that up. I could have done better. I love you. And I didn't show that well. So I want to encourage us to be that kind of community that says when new people come, we're not holding them to this standard. We're not saying they've got to look a certain way, but we're holding them. All we want is to be a place where we're, we're pursuing the inflow of the life of God and letting him take authority and responsibility for what comes out the other side. But as long as we're getting poured into and pouring in, I think that's going to make the, the biggest difference. Um, last thing real quick. When you look at the story of Hannah and the story of David, um, it really connects with me in a personal way right now in this season. My grandmother, my dad's mom, uh, passed away on Friday night. And she was the spiritual matriarch of our family. She was a prayer warrior. She was absolutely unashamed of her love for God to the point where she was frequently very embarrassing to the rest of her family. She was the kind of woman who would sit down and, you know, she would come and babysit us and, and she had kind of the Hannah thing where she just desperately cried out and prayed for her family, for her children, for her grandchildren. She was always, you know, it talks about in the Bible how Job would pray for his kids, like just in case one of them would do something wrong. That was my grandmother. Like she was always just lifting them up. And she would come and babysit us and she'd like wash the dishes or something. And she was one of those people that just randomly would burst out in prayer, just like, you know, or worship. She'd just sing a song or she'd go, oh, Lord Jesus, I love you. I worship you. And, and we're sitting around like, what am I supposed to do right now? Like, am I supposed to pray? Do I, you know, and, and it felt as a kid very awkward because we weren't used to it. We, we didn't know. And I'm like, amen? Like, <laughs> what, am I, what do I do? And yet, she just didn't care. I mean, it, she did it for two reasons. One, she had an overflow of abundance of love for Jesus. And j again, just like David, she didn't care who saw her. She didn't care if it was undignified. It would just flow out of her. Now, the second reason is she also did it because she knew people were watching, and she hoped that she would <laughs> encourage them to model that same behavior by doing it. But she was vulnerable. She was the kind of person that would randomly just go up and tell people in the grocery store she loved them and pray for them. She was constantly looking for ways to show the love of Jesus. She was constantly encouraging me spiritually. Even when I was four, five, six years old, I remember she would always talk to me about how much God loved me and always talk to me about, about who he was and who I was in him. She lived vulnerable. She lived exposed. She lived unashamed. And I hope to model that. I don't, I know naturally I don't do that super well. And that's something I want to grow in. But choosing to be vulnerable is something we have to fight for. And it's easiest to do when we know who our God is. We, when we know him as our mighty warrior, as our defender.